Tonight we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapters 4 and 5. It's a good time for you to come out and to bring a friend who maybe hasn't heard the Gospel, but you'd like to expose him to it. That's at 6.30. Would you turn now to Daniel chapter 2, as we have before us a challenge to cover this kind of material in the time that we have left uh, on a Sunday morning. That is a tall order, because you could easily spend many, 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 many weeks alone in this chapter But uh, for our purposes of application, we're going to cover the end of chapter 2 today. Father, we ask now that your Spirit would enable us to not only comprehend, but to rejoice in the truth of what is in store for this world in the future. Knowing that you are in control, you are ultimately sovereign. Lord, I pray that we would... Rejoice as we uncover the secrets that you revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by reading you something from a third grader named Danny Dutton from Chula Vista, California. And he tells us in his innocent but succinct manner what he thinks about God. He said, one of God's main jobs is making people. He makes these to put in place of the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of things here on the earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think it's because they're smaller and easier to make. You see, that way, he doesn't take up his time teaching them to walk and talk. He can just leave them up to the mothers and the fathers. I think that works out pretty good. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of these go on as some people, like preachers and things, pray at other times besides bedtimes. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV on account of this. As He hears everything, not only prayers, there must be a terrible lot of noise going into His ears, unless He has thought of a way to turn it off. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting time by going over your parents' head and ask for something they said you couldn't have. (laughs) Atheists are people who don't believe in God. I don't think there are any in Chula Vista. At least there aren't any who come to our church. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely. Because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp, but God can. It's good to know He's around when you're scared of the dark, or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown into a real deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure that God has put me here, and He can take me back anytime He pleases. And that's why... I believe in God. Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn the same lessons this third grader learns. That God is everywhere. That Nebuchadnezzar in this dark, lonely time, as he wonders about the future, that there is a God in heaven who rules. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe in God yet. He's about to believe. He's about to understand that God can take him anytime he pleases, for whatever reason he pleases. As you know, this last week, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis died. And because of her legacy with the late JFK, 
Many articles were written about her, and Newsweek in particular recounted the days of John Fitzgerald Kennedy's funeral, when afterwards Jackie summoned the great historian Theodore White, who was writing an article for Life magazine at the time, to come and interview her. And she said to Theodore White that both she and her husband believe that history belongs to the heroes, and the heroes must never be forgotten. I think Nebuchadnezzar thought the same thing. I think Nebuchadnezzar thought that history belonged to heroes, and Nebuchadnezzar was a hero. And no one must ever forget Nebuchadnezzar. But he's about to find out that history doesn't belong to the heroes. History belongs to God. And that history is simply his story. It's God's writing in advance or knowing in advance all that would happen through the unfolding lives of the people. Nebuchadnezzar is about to understand that the powers that be will soon be the powers that once were, and he won't be around much longer. Now, as we saw last week, Daniel received the interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and now he's going to reveal the dream to Nebuchadnezzar as he stands before him. As we get into this this morning, know this. We are seeing a peek into human history from Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's perspective, a sweep into human history, a succession of kingdoms are presented. And Daniel chapter 2, folks, is the background of biblical prophecy. It is an outline of the times of the Gentiles, or the ruling of Gentile kings upon the earth, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, all the way through history, even to the end times, when Jesus Christ comes to rule and to reign forever. Some of the events we read have already been fulfilled. Some of the events are being fulfilled right now. And some of them have yet to be fulfilled in the future. But the scene is a great scene because essentially it ends differently from how it begins. It begins with an earthly monarch upon his throne thinking that he's somebody who had just issued an edict to kill all the wise guys of the kingdom because they couldn't figure out his dream. It ends with that king bowing down before the heavenly king as Daniel reveals the dream. And so for matters of outlining and for organization, this section is divided into two sections. First, the explanation of the dream and then the effect of the dream. Let's look in verse 25 of chapter 2. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, The magicians and soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. 
but for our sakes, who made known the interpretation to the king, and that the that you might know the thoughts of your heart. Now, as we get into this this morning, the dream is a time machine for Nebuchadnezzar. He is transported through time and he sees a succession of kingdoms from his kingdom even to the latter days. That's a phrase that we read about in verse 28. The latter days. Literally translated in the end. It is a phrase that is used 14 times in the Old Testament. It's an important phrase. It's not general. It is specific. And it could mean the closing period of the future. And this section gives several closing periods of future events for Nebuchadnezzar up until the reign of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. I found it fascinating that Gallup poll discovered that one of the big questions on the minds of people in America is the question, when will the world end? When will the world end? And there's a lot more of that thinking today than ever before. Because things look worse and worse and will get worse and worse as we approach the time of the end. I think I agree with David Lawrence, writer of U.S. News and World Report, who noted a climax of some kind seems to be approaching the world over. Now, in verse 31, Daniel recounts what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image... This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar must have been spellbound at this point. Stroking his Babylonian beard, his mouth gaped open as he realized he's right on target. That's exactly what I saw in my dream This is marvelous. I didn't tell anybody my dream. And this man recounted exactly what I had seen in my dream. The dream was pretty much a stationary dream. There was no movement at first. He just simply saw a huge statue. Then suddenly, with dramatic movement, a supernaturally cut stone catapulted out of heaven, struck the image at the feet, exploded it. It turned into dust, and the wind, as of the threshing floor, blew it away. And it was no more. Verse 36, Daniel says, This is the dream, and now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Notice how Daniel puts it. There's no hesitation in his voice. He doesn't tremble and quiver and say, Did I get it right? He knew he got it right. He spoke with authority. This is the dream. Now I'm about to tell you what it means. One of the things that people noted about Jesus Christ was the same characteristic of authority. Almost every time after Jesus would speak a message, it says the crowds were astonished because he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes. 
In the early days of Billy Graham crusades, when he went to Dallas, Texas, and he was having a series of meetings in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl, the big challenge was if he could fill the 70,000-seat arena on his final night of the crusade, Sunday night. Everybody in Dallas said it couldn't be done. You're not going to get that many people out to see a preacher on Sunday night, especially. But cheers from the crowd went up as the last seat in that 70,000-seat stadium was filled. The next week, the Dallas Daily News had a whole feature article on the crusade and what had happened. The man who wrote the article posed a question. How can a young man without a seminary education draw such a crowd of people when some of the most highly educated and robed downtown ministers preach to half-filled churches on Sunday mornings? Answering his own question, the writer said, It's because Billy Graham preaches what the Bible says. He has a note of authority in his message, a thus saith the Lord. You've all noticed that, haven't you, about Billy Graham's preaching? He always says, the Bible says, in almost every paragraph of his message. It's filled with the authority of the Scripture. Daniel said, this is the dream, and I'm about to tell you its interpretation. Now, it's interesting in these verses of the dream, verse 31 through 35, that his dream, he saw an image, a statue, an icon, if you will. How fitting for a polytheistic king surrounded by idolatry and images to be communicated to him by God in language he could understand. A huge image. And it was an image of a man. It's an image of a man because these are men's kingdoms. This is the time of the Gentiles. Man is in charge in ruling the earth, it would seem. But it's in contrast to the heavenly mountain that grows up out of the stone. Man's kingdom in contrast to God's heavenly kingdom. The metals, gold, silver, brass, iron, and iron and clay, represent a succession of world-governing kingdoms. And as you go through Daniel, you're impressed with the authority of the Scripture. Because even as Daniel predicted the kingdoms that would come, they have come. And these prophecies, many of them, have been fulfilled. And they appeared exactly as Daniel said they appeared in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. A couple things before we move on. The preciousness of the metal deteriorates as it goes down. Beginning with gold, less precious silver, bronze or copper, iron, and then iron and clay. The preciousness deteriorates. The specific gravity decreases as we move down the image as well. The specific gravity of gold being 19... The specific gravity of silver being 11, bronze being 8.5, iron being 7.8. But as it decreases, the strength increases. Iron is much stronger than gold, which is very pliable. Gold weighs the most, and so most of the weight is up on top versus the bottom. The statue is top-heavy, a very apt depiction of all of the kingdoms of men upon the earth. They might look like they're strong, but they're top-heavy. There's no good foundation, and eventually all of them will topple, as Daniel even predicts. All right. In verse 36, he says, this is the dream. Now we'll tell you the interpretation. And he goes on, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven 
has given you a kingdom of power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or beasts of the field and birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. And he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with the clay. Going down from the head to the toes, Daniel explains the image to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold. God has given you a kingdom. You are the biggest monarch of your generation. You are the most powerful king of your generation right now. You're the king of kings as far as earthly rulers go. God has given to you all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, they're under your dominion. You know what Daniel was doing? He was playing off a custom that Nebuchadnezzar was used to and using it for the glory of God. You see, every year in Babylon, on New Year's, the king of Babylon was set upon his throne and they celebrated creation by saying the king was the embodiment of the creation god named Marduk, who gave the king all the authority of the beasts and the birds that were around him. And so what Daniel says is, Hey, king, you're in charge of all of these things, but it ain't Marduk who gave you the authority. It's the God in heaven who you don't know yet. He's planting a seed by using this custom to reveal it to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. That's the Babylonian empire. And indeed, Babylon was known as the city of gold, with its shrines, temples, public buildings, all having gold in them, sometimes inordinate amounts of gold. Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom was this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, as you're going to see next week and weeks following, was intoxicated with power. And power is more addictive than wealth or even any drug. And seldom does a man recover who has a thirst for power because it's so corrupting. And Nebuchadnezzar was intoxicated with vast amounts of power, being in charge of the whole world swelled up with pride, and indeed his kingdom continues for a while. Until about 539 B.C. And then problems developed as seen in the silver. Verse 39, But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now, it's not mentioned in our text, but we know that this kingdom is none other than the Medo-Persian Empire. You say, how do you know, Skip? Well, because another chapter of the book of Daniel says it will be the Medo-Persian Empire. 
That's how I know. And we know by looking back that after Babylon came the Medo-Persian Empire. In chapter 5 is the account. You don't have to turn to it, but in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar, is having a prideful, drunken orgy. And God has a message that he's going to write to him on the wall because he was off the wall. And his kingdom shatters as Darius the Mede conquers the city, delivers it over to King Cyrus, the head of the Medo-Persian Empire, and the kingdom continued. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire was larger geographically than Babylon, even as the chest and arms would have more mass and space than the head of gold. But it was inferior to the Babylonian Empire. It It lacked strong central government and control. It lacked administrative qualities. It was inferior in that way. And uh, there was a young Greek yuppie named Alexander the Great who knew that and had his eyes on the Medo-Persian Empire. We can read about him at the last part of verse 39. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. This bronze abdomen and thighs represent the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. You say, boy, now you're really stretching it. No, I'm not, because again, other chapters in Daniel spell it out as the Grecian Empire. And historically, that's exactly what happened. There was Babylon, Medo-Persia, and the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that in 332 B.C., when Alexander the Great was sweeping through the world and happened to stop at Jerusalem to take over the city, that a high priest named Jadua approached the armies of Alexander with the scroll of Daniel in his hand, unfurled the scroll, and showed Nebuchadnezzar, the, uh, uh, Alexander, these prophecies. Alexander was so impressed that things had been written about him in advance, he got off of his horse... He spared Jerusalem and he bowed down to God, Josephus says, because he saw that these verses were speaking of himself. Alexander had an ambition. He wanted to rule over the whole world. And at a very young age, with lightning speed, his empires came against the Medo-Persian Empire in several successful battles. And his kingdom spread all the way from Europe, the Greco-Macedonian area, Egypt, and even the borders of India. He took it over so fast, even he was surprised. And he was such an aggressive type A personality that he had taken over all of the known world at that time and he was only 29 years old. 29 years old. And what did he do? He was in Babylon where he fell upon his bed and wept because there were no more known worlds that he could conquer. Poor baby. Nothing else left. I've conquered the world. Now what? A couple years later, he died as a drunk. Plato said, only those who don't desire power are fit to hold power. Alexander seized power quickly, but he wanted it too badly. He wasn't fit to hold on to it. And though he conquered with lightning speed, his kingdom was inferior even to the Medo-Persian Empire, though it encompassed more space. It lacked, again, strong administration. And it left it vulnerable to another empire that was rising in the West. By the way, I have been to Athens, 
And it's fascinating to see the ancient ruins of Greece at the Acropolis. But you know what? They're just ruins. There's nothing left of them anymore. It's past tense. It had its heyday. It's fallen. Then we get, in verse 40 and onward, the legs of iron. And historians tell us you couldn't have a better description of the Roman Empire than the legs of iron. It was said that Rome ruled with an iron fist and an iron heel. And like a steamroller, slowly but surely, Rome took over all of the nations that Greece, Medo-Persia, and Babylon once occupied and became in charge of the known world. In fact, so pervasive is the rule of Rome, so long-lasting, that we bear witness to that fact every Christmas. On many Christmas cards, at many Christmas sermons, we read these words. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Even at the time of Jesus, Rome was clearly in charge. And when Caesar says move, everybody in the world moved and a taxation was upon the world. But Nebuchadnezzar sees a deterioration of the image. First of all, he sees this kingdom as represented by two legs. It began well, but it was divided. And sure enough, not long after its formation, Rome divided east and west. And the kingdom started deteriorating until finally we have at the bottom of the legs the feet of iron and clay where there is an incredible deterioration. The legs are the longest part of the man. And so it was that the Roman Empire lasted longer in duration than the Greek, the Medo-Persian, or the Babylonian. Very, very true to form, uh, this image that he sees. And we still, to this day, see the influence of the Roman Empire in our law, in our court systems, in many of our culturistic mannerisms are very entrenched in Rome. In fact, Rome influenced the church so much that we still say that there is a segment called the Roman Catholic Church. Rome had a great influence upon the world. But Rome is toast. It's history. Yes, it's an impressive city, but that's all it is. This last year I walked on the ruins of the Forum and many of the buildings of ancient Rome, and that's all they are, a bunch of ruins. But... In this image, in this vision, it seems that the feet and the toes seem to describe another time period altogether. You see, this is what happened. Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece. Greece was taken over by the Roman Empire. How was the Roman Empire conquered? It wasn't. It deteriorated inwardly and it was fragmented. It fragmented in most of Europe. Those are the pieces that are left. North Africa, Syria, Egypt, and the fragments remain. Now, each fragment has tried to attain world power, but they never succeeded. Hitler tried. Bonaparte tried. Mussolini tried. England tried, but never made it to that world-class governing empire status that Nebuchadnezzar Cyrus of Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, and the Caesars of Rome held. The ten toes represent ten nations. You say, now you just made that up. No, I didn't. In verse 44, speaking of the ten toes, we read, and in the days of these kings, 
The kings referring to the ten toes of the previous verse. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, we don't have time to turn in our Bibles to all these places, but Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets his own vision. He sees a beast with ten horns, and he says, these ten horns are ten kingdoms, which will be the latter end of history. Ten kingdoms will arise. Revelation chapter 13, a beast appears with ten horns, and we read, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Now, folks, because of these prophecies, ten toes, a beast, ten horns, and others, for 1,900 years, scholars have been looking for what they call the revival or revitalization of the Roman Empire. That the fragments left over of the Roman Empire in Europe and other places would somehow come together and be a world force again. And some see the EEC, the European Economic Community, as fulfilling that prophecy. That's certainly possible. They've got a lot of economic clout, looking for military clout. It could be that or a conglomeration of other nations somehow related to the Roman Empire. Obviously, these nations are not strong enough to rule alone, so they band together as a group of ten, throw down their borders, their language, their economy, and they come together as an empire. That's what Daniel saw. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel interpreted. You might say, now, Skip, wait just a minute. It seems that if that's true, if you've got world-governing empires, you've got this huge gap, this hiatus, and then the last world empire of ten nations. What about the coming of Jesus Christ? He never mentioned that. What about the church age and all that's transpiring in the last 2,000 years? How come he didn't mention that? Well, it's not his purpose. God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar men ruling, Gentile nations ruling, and the final world-governing empire in contrast to the rule of God upon the earth in which Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. That shouldn't surprise you, by the way. Many times in Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 61 and so forth, the first and second coming of Jesus are lumped together without that huge gap called the church age, which we're living in now, this age of grace. It's an image of a man, man's kingdoms, in contrast to the mountain that will fill the entire earth. Now, if today man was to construct an image, to build an image of the history of the world, they would do it just the opposite, I believe. If you were to ask people today, build me an image that represents history, they'd begin with clay, primordial slime. They'd move on to harder clay and iron. They'd progress up to bronze and then eventually to silver and then to the present age of gold. Look at where we are now. We've progressed. We've gotten better. We're more refined. Boy, evolution is great. We're so technologically advanced. We're as gold today. Now you're really dreaming. From God's perspective, the nations deteriorated since history began. And they seem to get worse as time goes on. But the good news is the everlasting kingdom in verse 44. It shall be in the days of these kings 
that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom will not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Wow, what a dream. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know the future. Daniel is saying, for God, it's back to the future. God knew all about this in advance. History is His story. God is revealing to you His sovereign control in the events of men. This is what's going to happen. And it happened. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and now we're waiting for that final coalescing, bringing together of ten nations. And when those nations rule, then Jesus Christ will come again to rule and reign forever with a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What's the stone all about in the vision? The stone is none other than Jesus Christ, and I think most of you picked up on that already. Isaiah predicted, saying, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. Whoever believes in Him shall not make haste. The stone is given a personality in Isaiah. Jesus' own words in Matthew 21, He spoke about Him as the stone. And He said, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. When Jesus comes again, all of the governments, all of the people that are against Him, the governments will come to a screeching halt. They'll be ground to powder. They'll be destroyed. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. In fact, listen to what Jesus said. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And it says in Psalm 2, which we read at the beginning of the service this morning, He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When Jesus came the first time, He came humbly as a Savior. When He comes again, He's going to come with authority as a king. He's going to be the boss. There's going to be no more perversion. There's going to be no more crime. There's going to be no more elections. He'll be the boss. He'll clean up the world. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Neither will they learn to make war anymore, Isaiah predicted, as God reigns. Queen Victoria ascended the throne at 18 years of age in England. A fledgling, really. She didn't know the protocol, and she was trained how to act as a queen. She longed to see a production of Handel's Messiah, which she was allowed to go to. Her advisor said, now, queen, during the chorus, when everybody stands up, when they sing King of Kings and Lord of Lords, everybody stands. That's the place of the common people. But you as the queen must remain seated. But sure enough, when they started singing King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Handel's Messiah, she jumped to her feet and then bowed to the ground. And nobody in that room missed the significance of that. Here is an earthly queen bowing down to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nebuchadnezzar is about to do that. You'll do that one day. 
Actually, the Bible says, Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, well, I'm not going to bow now. Fine, but you'll do it one day. It's better to do it now while you can do it voluntarily and be a part of His kingdom. Because the coming of Jesus Christ is good news and bad news. The good news, if you're on His side, you'll rule and reign with Him. If you're not on His side, all these kingdoms and nations apart from Him will be destroyed in judgment. That's why C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. You might be thinking, you know, that's fine, Skip. It's impressive history, but I don't believe that Jesus is coming again. I think that history is just going to continue on in the future and we'll make it. I mean, things are bad, but not that bad. Where have you been? Every single part of this dream has been fulfilled already. What makes you think the last part, God's just kidding? It's going to be fulfilled. Guaranteed. You know, it's interesting. A few years back, Newsweek polled the United States of America and found that there's a huge percentage of Americans who don't believe we ever went to the moon. Still. They see the pictures, they've heard the reports, but they don't believe it's possible because the whole concept of physics and uh, space travel is foreign to them. It's beyond them. Thus, because they don't understand it, they don't believe it. Just because you may not understand the astrophysics of the return of Christ doesn't mean that God's going to say, well, okay, I won't do it. It's going to come. The stone will come from heaven. And destroy all of the earthly kingdoms opposed to God, and He will rule and reign forever and ever. Now, this dream had an effect on Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen the explanation of the dream, and briefly, the effect of the dream is that King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. I suggest you do the same. Prostrate before Daniel, commanding that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Did you know that that was the intended effect this dream was to have? This earthly king, who thought he was something, is bowing before God. That's exactly the intended purpose of this dream. That's why God gave it to him. And then Daniel revealed it to him. Contrast briefly two verses. Look at verse 25 in contrast to verse 47. In verse 25, Arioch says, I have found a man. He's bragging. He comes before Nebuchadnezzar and says, King, I have found the guy to do it. You can count on me, King. I have found a man. In verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar in effect says, I have found God. I have found God. Arioch is looking to man. Nebuchadnezzar is looking to God. Every four years, the people in the polls say, I have found a man. This surely is the one. We find out it's not. I have found God. And he bows before the King of kings and Lord. What a confession this is. Since Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheist, but now he believes in Daniel's God. And then the last couple of verses, Daniel and his friends are promoted. The king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon, something that's going to make these guys mad. 
Also Daniel petitioned the king and set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel showed superiority to the rest, brings his buddies with him. Here's the short and long of it. The kingdoms of men are temporary. Man rules temporarily, but not ultimately. Every great kingdom fell in history. Let us not be arrogant to think that our present government is going to last forever. It won't. And doesn't it make sense that if the kingdom of God is everlasting, that we quit investing in our own kingdoms that are temporary and start getting on His side, which is eternal? Wouldn't it be great instead of saying, I align myself with one of these kingdoms in this image. Great is man. I'm a humanist. To be on the side of the rock and the mountain and be with Jesus Christ who will rule and reign forever. Boy, isn't Daniel a great example of somebody who is involved in his world politically, socially, but he lived not for this world but for the next world to influence men and women for the gospel. So I think that little Danny Dutton said it best, that third grader, when he said, you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure that God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. That's why I believe in God. How about you? Are you as arrogant as Nebuchadnezzar? Thinking, oh, I have a lot of time. I'm in charge of my life. How about bowing before God this morning and saying, God's in charge? Instead of saying, I have found a man or a woman or anybody. How about, I need God. He's in charge of history. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the window of revelation that you've given to us. You are the revealer of secrets. You know the end from the beginning. You never learn. You know. And all of history is your story. You're unfolding. You're sovereign in the affairs of men. Though sometimes it's difficult in certain governments to even believe that. We believe you are. Father, I pray for those in this room who have never made a commitment to the God of heaven. Their theme has been, I found a man. I'm looking to the government. I'm looking to myself. But they've never looked to you. They've never given you the authority of their life and acknowledged you as the Savior of their sins of their souls to wash away their sin. Before we close, briefly, are there any of you that have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ yet? Since we're approaching quickly the latter days, the end of times, the closing of time periods, we're seeing some of these formations take place. Do you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? Do you want to be assured that sin is forgiven? Do you want to bow now, voluntarily, so that you don't have to be forced to bow later? as an enemy of Christ, enemy of Christ.